0: My name is Matthew Taylor. I'm the chief executive of the RSA here in London.
1: While we have faced challenges before, this one is different.
0: Stay at home, protect lives, and then you will be doing your part. What I want to know is just how could and just how should the world change after this pandemic? So that's the question I'm putting to leading experts... It feels like it's life and death for people's businesses, their jobs, their hopes for the future. Renowned thinkers. All you want is a hug, to be honest with you. If you're living alone in this era, there are no hugs. And global leaders. China and the United States are going to emerge from this crisis significantly diminished. Welcome to Bridges to the Future, Responses to COVID-19. I'm delighted to be joined today by Michael Ignatieff, a public intellectual whose work I have followed for many decades and who is a fascinating person who writes wonderful stuff about everything from the future of liberalism to the rise of authoritarianism to what makes communities strong. So, Michael, welcome to Building Bridges to the Future. And tell us what you're doing with your life now.
1: Thank you, Matthew. I'm in a small town two hours from Hungary, which is where my wife comes from. My wife's Hungarian. As I talk to you, I have a view of Lake Balaton, which is a very beautiful, largest lake in Central Europe. And I am the rector and president of Central European University, which is located in Budapest, but is in lockdown because of the coronavirus. So I spend most of my day sitting, looking at the Lake Balaton and attempting
0: to run or pretending to run or believing I run the university online. You know, one of the characteristics of this crisis, Michael, is that those of us who are knowledge workers and who live in reasonably nice places have to keep reminding ourselves of how very different it feels if you are out of work or living in overcrowded housing or you've got children and inadequate internet access or whatever. We need to keep reminding ourselves of how differently this crisis impacts on people.
1: Absolutely. I Just this afternoon, as it happens, I saw the latest US unemployment figures. I suppose the figures in Britain are equally frightening. There is a huge class divide in the experience of this. I talked to so many people like me who've actually found lockdown. Rather, the worst of it is that it's occasionally boring or frustrating, but not life-threatening, not fearful, not terrifying as it must be. I won't forget a news broadcast I saw recently of just somebody trying to teach their kids online in a one-bedroom flat somewhere in West London with kids running in and out and and a granny somewhere. You just thought, wow, this is just really tough. I, I think people will remember this as an extremely grim time. And For those of us who've got the good fortune to have stable employment and to be able to work as I've been doing remotely, it has been a pretty, sometimes a painful reminder of privilege, no
0: question about it. Well, there's lots to talk about there, Michael. But let's start off by asking the question that we ask everybody in this podcast. So, Michael Ignatieff, how do you think that this crisis could and how do you think this crisis should change the world?
1: I think the should is much easier than the could. I mean, should you think we need to develop multilateral and multinational capacities to research, track, and fight these epidemics. We need to have more international cooperation. We need to break down the barriers between peoples. What is actually happening is that the only institution That has really been called upon to act in this crisis has been the nation state. And so everybody has flown back to the nation state, to Britain, to Germany, to France, to Hungary, to the Czech Republic. So it's been a massive enhancement of the power of the state. When in some ways, what we want is a strengthened WHO, a credible international organization that can coordinate the response to this, intellectual property regimes that mean that if and when we get a vaccine, it is a global public good and the people who develop it get paid for it, of course, but it's distributed as a global public good to save people all over the world. I mean, those are the kind of things you wish would happen. My fear is that what will happen is a reinforcement of national and state sovereignty. And up to a point, that's fine, because we want to have capable legitimate competent national governments and my sense look I'm not in Britain but my sense of looking at Britain is this crisis has been a terrible exposure of just how bad British government is how chaotic how uncoordinated how disappointing it's been in, in places and you know there've been some magnificent responses in the national health service and some incredibly touching displays of courage and resourcefulness. But basically, the response of the UK administration has been disappointing as it has been in the States. So where do I come out? I come out wishing that there would be more international cooperation, but I feel there'll be less. And I feel I would like this to be a wake-up call for us all to realize how deficient our national governments are, how much more efficient and effective and credible they need to be but I kind of fear that my wishes and what will happen, they are no relation at all. I don't see it as being the same kind of hinge moment as 45. In 1945 was a hinge moment. People came back having beaten Hitler, and they really wanted a new world. And they'd worked hard for years before to plan what that new world would be from beverage onwards. And so we did get a new world after 1945 in country after country after country This could have been such a moment, but I just don't
0: think it will be. There is some commentary about this crisis that says that we can see some patterns in terms of how countries have responded. So the populists don't seem to have done terribly well, whether it's Trump or Bolsonaro or Putin. The responses have been pretty terrible, not just incompetent, but usual games being played at a time when really we want leaders to stop playing games and focus on the job in hand. People also say that some of the best responses have been from women leaders rather than men leaders. And also those countries that have got strong relationships of trust between governments and the people were able to respond more quickly. Do you see any kind of patterns and do you have any hope that people will reflect afterwards and we see the kind of global league table and draw some conclusions from that about what good government is? Oh, I think this is a laboratory experiment
1: in government. And I think there'll be, you know, I don't want to make this all boring, but I I think political scientists will be studying comparative political responses to this crisis for a very long time to come. And I think they're Study of this will be very important. I mean, some of what you're saying sounds absolutely right. In the league table of who did badly, Bolsonaro will be at the top, Trump will be at the top, Boris Johnson will not have done well. He had a horrible, life threatening encounter with this, but this crisis showed up the kind of amateurish, improvisational character of his own personality, but it also, I think, laid bare some really serious defects in how Britain is governed. It's kind of over-centralized on one hand, and so everything had to be done out of that Whitehall press conference at 6 p.m. And in other places, decentralization, where you empower cities, you empower regions, you empower provinces to act, you get a much more effective response. Canada is much more decentralized than Britain, and the decentralization, the empowering of provinces and regions and cities has meant that you've got, I think, a much more muscular and effective response. So that would be one thing, over-centralization turned out not to be good. And in the states, some of the most effective responses have not been at the national centralized level, but in state governments like Michigan or New York, or particularly California, that might be one lesson. The second lesson clearly is, it would be very interesting to get to the bottom of why female leaders have been better than some male leaders. I don't want to, you know, endorse a lot of kind of fatuous political correctness. Of, but there might be something to look at there. The other thing I think to look at is small countries versus big countries. Jacinda Arden runs a small island. She did a wonderful job, but she was assisted by the fact that it's a small country and an island, uh, Singapore small Denmark, small, good results in small countries. I have to say, although it's not particularly popular, that Hungary may have had a good crisis because it's small. Austria, good crisis, again, small. And that, that recalls some 18th century story that I think I first heard from Jean Jacques Rousseau that if you want a democratic freedom, you ought to have it in a small country. And that then connects to what you were saying, Matthew, about trust. I think it's easier to build relations of trust in smaller countries countries. In Denmark, everybody knows everybody else. In New Zealand, it's a much smaller country. In other places like Canada, which are huge, decentralization means you associate with, you know, your provincial, your regional, your city leader. And that trust is much easier to reproduce than when you have, you know, big continental um, or excessively centralized countries. And then I think there's a story about the ways in which we've taken apart the welfare state, I'm a complete, you know, social welfare liberal of the 60s. The NHS wasn't just a kind of instrument to me. It was it was the heart and soul of what Britain was to me. I lived in Britain for 20 years and, and loved the country. I had the same passionate feeling of attachment to some of the institutions in Canada where I come from. And I think the coronavirus crisis has been a moment of truth. You know, some of our assumptions about how just effective our welfare systems are have been shown up to be cruelly deficient. Uh, Just as the Grenfell fire showed up just how far we got away from, you know, the homes for heroes ideal of post-war housing. So I think the COVID crisis has shown up just how unbelievably shameful our regulation of care homes has been. I mean, just we talk this garbage about how much we care about our Old folks and and look what happened. It just really shocks me. I'm now <laughs> I'm now one of the old folks. You know, I'm in my mid seventies, and I think there is one lesson from this crisis for me is I am never going into a care home. I don't trust anybody. That's a lesson, but it's a shocking lesson. It's a lesson about how much we let some of our key institutions decay. That we really have to fix. There's just no ifs ands and buts. And I think we will. I think we'll have to, because it's our mums and dads. It's
0: ourselves. The framework that we have been using at the RSA to think about this is to suggest that there are three conditions which contribute to whether or not crisis does lead to change. The first is, was there demand and capacity for change before the crisis? Because change doesn't come from nowhere. Secondly, in the crisis, does that demand grow? And do you see new attitudes, new ways of being being prefigured in the response to the crisis. So you have a glimpse of the future in the crisis. And then thirdly, and often the hardest bit, as you emerge from crisis and people are open to change, they're open to the possibility of sacrifice, that you then have the political coalitions and the practical policy ideas and social innovations that you need to take advantage of that wider Overton window. So the one obvious area would be climate change, where certainly compared to 2007-8, a much greater awareness, even in business and finance of the importance of climate change, governments having made big commitments, activism of extinction, rebellion, and others. In the crisis, people appreciating, actually, cleaner air and spending more time in their garden if they're fortunate enough to have one, but also being deeply aware of the problems of a lack of resilience. And this is, in many ways, the warnings we had from epidemiologists that we didn't listen to have an eerie similarity to the warnings from climate scientists that we haven't listened to. And we certainly could have the ideas and political coalition to come out of this and say, well, look, we've solved this small crisis in comparison to climate change. Now can we deal with an existential one? Does that hold any water of that analysis, do you think, Michael?
1: I think it's a very good framework to think about this. and I hope your listeners are as intrigued by it as I am. I think there is a glimmering politics which really didn't exist a decade ago. And that's a politics that is based on the science of epidemiology and on climate science. The two together really reframe the political challenge in a huge way. On the epidemiological side, it frames the differential impact of epidemics on social classes and races and even genders. And so epidemiology is a new frame in which you think about a social justice, climate raising, you know, decisive issues about justice and about distribution. And I think you're right, the experience of two months of shutdown for a lot of people has been kind of heartening to just rediscover how goddamn beautiful the world is. I mean, This is the first spring I can remember in 25 years that I was even really aware of the spring at all. That is, again, what I said at the beginning is a feature of my privilege. I mean, for those who've, you know, the 20 million people in the United States who have lost their job, this was not a time to savor the delights of spring. And I think we have a real uh, worry here in terms of presenting this new politics. I believe in this new politics, but There's a certain apocalyptic version of it, which says, you know, well, if two months of, you know, shutdown has reduced carbon emissions by 17%, a number I saw yesterday, you know, kind of, isn't that great? And let's go further. Everybody out of a job will say, are you nuts? Is that the price of climate justice that I lose my job? In other words, we've got to think much harder about what we say to those who've been rendered so terrifyingly vulnerable by the epidemic. I think, in other words, there is a politics that's kind of epidemiology plus climate science and that says here are some new human imperatives that we all have to orchestrate our politics around. But unless we have a better story for the losers, for the people who are terrified that they're never gonna be able to work again, I think this is
0: a politics that'll blow up. Well, as you know, Michael, from your own experience as a politician, politics is all around building coalitions. And one of my observations about 2007-8 was that one of the reasons that opportunity was spurned was because there was a breakdown, really, of the relationship between liberal and social democratic parties in power trying to cope with that crisis sometimes kind of exhausted by the effort that was involved in that and trying to prop things up. And the radical left of the kind of Occupy movement, the 1% movement, which had a kind of powerful critique, but not much really in terms of practical policies. Now, you've observed throughout your career the relationship between the left and the centre-left and liberalism. Do you think one of the critical determinants of whether or not we do emerge from this crisis in a positive trajectory is that we're able to build those centre-to-centre-left coalitions and sustain them
1: no question no question and we've just got to get our rhetoric right here i mean i woke up this morning and one of the newspapers i was reading was describing the human race as a virus on the planet because of our destructive impact on the environment well you know it's just not helpful to talk about humankind as a virus and there's quite a lot of that in the radical environmental movement and it's just a ticket to nowhere politically human beings do not think of themselves as a virus on the planet human beings think differently they think we've got <laughs> we've got a purpose here on earth and we've made life better not just for ourselves but for lots of other species and the story of the human interaction with the planet is not simply one of destruction, but also of preservation, love and care. So there's just a lot of radical rhetoric out there that isn't very helpful. And in the environmental movement, you know, I'm in favor of consensus, not because I think good sense is always to be found in the middle, but for a very much more basic reason, which is that in a democracy, everybody counts. So somebody who has been a coal miner or a steel worker or working in the car sector or who's an airline stewardess, in other words, all the people in carbon-intensive industries are citizens just like us. So if you get up there with a rhetoric that says, basically, I want to ground all of you guys and get you out of the jobs you're in into some other job that I can't quite describe now, but if you have 10 years of training, we might get there. I mean... That's just a voting block that will never vote for you in a month of Sundays. I say this with some feeling because in Canada, for example, we produce enormous amount of fossil fuels. And I'd like to get my country off fossil fuels into renewables. But the fossil fuel industry sustains, you know, a half a million people and their fellow citizens. That's why you need a coalition. And that's why you need to watch your rhetoric. And that's why you need to to figure out ways to reach out to people who are not being persuaded by environmental epidemiological politics. You just have to understand where they are. And where they are is that they're your fellow citizens. They have claims, they have interests. And that's what a politics is all about. And it is too late in the day for people to pronounce anathema on humanity as a virus, to pronounce anathema on you know, the capitalist system, when in fact, the capitalist system is one of the most efficient ways to send price signals to change behavior. I mean, how have we got renewables? We've got renewables basically through subsidy regulation and incentives to private capitalist markets. And we are where we are with renewables, thanks to capitalism. So let's get out of an ideological battle about capitalism. Anybody who's got a better idea for a system to send price signals and signals to modify behavior, show it to me, but I haven't seen it. And we've been in this system for a couple hundred years, and it's got us to where we are, which I don't think is Armageddon or the end of the world. So we have to have this argument straight up with people who have the convictions I admire, but have a political message that I think can't go anywhere.
0: Michael, the time has flown by, but there's one other topic I want to cover before we end, which is that your wonderful book, The Ordinary Virtues, which you came and spoke at the RSA about. Anybody wants to watch Michael's talk, I think it's on the RSA website. I hadn't thought about that book for a while. And then I read Rutger Bregman's book, Humankind. And it reminded me of your book, because I don't know whether you've read Rutger's book, but his basic argument is that the overwhelming evidence is that human beings are basically inclined to be pretty nice people, but that we've been subject to an ideology for decades, which has been a kind of weird combination of economics, bad social psychology, gloomy philosophy, which has encouraged us to believe that human beings are basically bad and to construct many of our systems on that basis. Now, one of the things we've seen in this crisis is people stepping forward, volunteering, helping out, trying to find out who's alone and isolated in their community, get help to them. So I know it's a being an abstract idea, Michael, but I wonder whether you think that one of the things that might come out of this crisis, just because of the timing of it, as it were, is that it might help us to rethink our attitude to human motivation and human nature. Oh, I think there's a lot to
1: that, Matthew. I think that President Macron of France, with whom I'm not always in agreement, said something very important when he said, you know, the global lockdowns, the fact that something like a half of the human race was in lockdown, often in really tough conditions, that we shut the global economy down for eight weeks because we thought it was more important to save human lives than to keep the machine going, was the most dramatic demonstration of our commitment to each other that I've ever seen in my adult life. And, you know, we do need to take lessons from that. It's a very, very hopeful lesson that when push comes to shove, there is something that matters ultimately to us, and which is our lives and the lives of those we love and care about and that mobilization of collective solidarity was pretty amazing. Now, I think it's going to fragment. I think as lockdown ends, we're going to be in the, the old pell-mell competitive game, but I hope we don't forget what we were prepared to do to save ourselves and save others. Yeah, I hope it makes us rethink rethink human nature. I don't know, but realize the empathy, the sympathy, the capacities of cooperation that have always been there.
0: Michael, it's been wonderful talking to you. And it's probably a silly question because you have been running an institution and no doubt doing lots of writing and thinking as well. But many people in lockdown have found themselves baking bread or out in their garden, or in my case, learning to play the guitar and sing at the same time, although very badly. Have you developed any new skills, attributes or interests over the last few weeks?
1: Oh, boy, what a wonderful question. I think I have got better at a certain domestic skill, which is providing my wife with low paid menial labor. I have got a little better at that. And uh, I hope she's, I hope she's happy about it.
0: Well, it's never too late to learn these things, Michael. (laughs) Thank you so much for spending your time with us today.
1: Pleasure, Matthew. Thanks a lot.
0: That's it for this episode of Bridges to the Future, but we'll be back with more insights and analysis very soon. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please tell someone about it, and we would really appreciate it if you took just two minutes to leave us a rating or review in your podcast app. And that's not it. The RSA is commissioning online events, essays, blog posts to help make sense of what's happening right now and in the months to come. Also, the RSA Fellowship is a global network of problem solvers. We'd love you to join our community today to stay connected, inspired and motivated in the months ahead. You can learn more about the fellowship or the work that we're doing on the pandemic and the world after it by going to the rsa.org.uk or clicking the link in our bio. But for now, thanks from me, Matthew Taylor, and my producer, Craig Templeton-Smith.